Well, good morning. This morning, we want to continue our discussion in Acts chapter 9 with the conversion of the Apostle Paul. And today we'll study uh, Acts 9, 20 through 31. The topic, uh, at least my title of this section, is Saul's Apologetic and His Return to Jerusalem. The conversion of Saul of Tarsus was recorded by Luke in Acts 9, 1 through 19. This stunning event was a pivot point, not only for Saul, but also for Christianity. A great adversary of Jesus became a great proponent and was used of the Lord to help lay the foundation of the New Testament ecclesia. In time, Saul of Tarsus, who would become known as Paul, the Apostle Paul, would become a major leader of the New Testament ecclesia. Paul would be recognized as a pillar of Christianity like Peter, James, and John, see Galatians 2.9. And Peter, James, and John would focus on the Jews and Paul on the Gentiles, the ethnos. Though the discipleship mandate in Matthew 28, 18 through 20 was to disciple the, the ethnos, and it was given to Peter, James, and John and the others who were the original apostles, it was more fulfilled, arguably, by the apostle Paul than it was by anyone else. Perhaps the real replacement of Judas was not Matthias, but Paul. Paul's conversion to Christianity was confusing for both the Jews and the Gentiles. How could the great adversary of Jesus become the greatest advocate of Christianity? The answer was simple, and that it was Jesus himself. When Jesus intercepted Saul, his life was transformed. Saul became a pillar of the New Testament ecclesia and arguably the greatest apologist in Christian history. So let's begin in Acts chapter 9, verse 20, and continue this remarkable story of how Jesus, the work of Jesus to transform Saul and now transform the world. So reading through this text, I want to read it, and then we'll uh, go through and make a few comments on it. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. The, the antecedent of the pronoun he is, is Saul. Saul had been in Damascus. His eyes were blinded by virtue of the, the interception by Jesus. And Ananias came and prayed over him. And he was filled with the spirit and he received his sight. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for the purpose to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night to, in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him, led him down to an opening in the, uh, in, in the basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. 
and he spoke and disputed among the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned, learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So go back to now verse 20. As would become Saul's custom, he declared his message in the synagogues first. The synagogues were the venues of Jewish learning for the dispersion. The synagogue system preserved the Jewish heritage outside of Israel, a tradition based on the singularity of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Saul explained that the God of Scripture had a plan of redemption that included the divine incarnation of God in the form of his son. In other words, he's now showing, he's now demonstrating that the oneness of God does not exclude the Trinitarian nature of God. This was a deeply challenging idea to the Jews. Saul's message was that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, this is the only time in the book of Acts that Jesus was called the Son of God. That may be surprising to you, but it's it's not really inconsistent with anything that's in the book of Acts. Certainly, the appellation uh, was accurate and fitting. However, the focus of the initial witness by Jesus and his disciples was not on Jesus as the Son of God, but it was summarized in Peter in his great sermon in Acts chapter 2, verse 36. This was the very first message, first declaration about Jesus. He says, and his, basically the conclusion to his message was, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that is Jesus, both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. Peter's message on the day of Pentecost included a reference to Psalm 110 verse 1, which intimates the sonship of Jesus. Note that David said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make my enemies your footstool. Psalm 110 verse 1. Though the explicit reference to Jesus being the son of God was not a focus of Acts, clearly Saul proclaimed Jesus as the Son of God in Damascus, and that was consistent with the Old Testament. And see, what Saul was doing at, and when his early days as a Christian was spending time studying the Old Testament in light of the fact that Jesus was the Christ. Now, there's some that find the, the moniker of Jesus being the Son of God, you know, a little bit... Uh, you know, it's a profound moniker, but what does it really mean? Uh, F.F. F. Bruce, in his commentary on the book of Acts, he quotes a man named A.E. Harvey, who says this about the three aspects of sonship, or at least he, he attributes three aspects of sonship. He said implicit in the ascription of the title to Jesus is that Jesus was the perfect, perfect one who was obedient to God, that his being was the ultimate revealer of God and his being the authorized agent of God. Jesus was indeed all of these, plus I would add Jesus was the very essence of God as well. Now, verse 21, and all who heard him, that is Paul, were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem for those who called upon his name? Well, certainly his reputation had preceded him in, in Damascus. Damascus is about 150 miles 
uh, north of Jerusalem. And it's really not in Israeli territory. It's in Gentile territory. So even though it was it's quite a distance and communications were hard during those times, Paul's Saul's reputation had preceded him. Reading on, and has he not come here for the purpose? That is, has he not come to Damascus for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? That is, those who call upon the name of Jesus. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. The transformation of Saul who, from opposing Jesus to supporting Jesus was stunning. The Jews in Damascus knew of Saul and his mission to arrest those who were followers of Jesus. Though the Jews crucified Jesus, he was resurrected and his followers were growing. The jealous Jewish leaders opposed the followers of Jesus, and Saul, as a young Jewish apprentice leader, was perhaps the most zealous opponent of all. As with anyone intercepted by Jesus, Saul's conversion enabled him to see Scripture differently. Saul was trained by Gamaliel, a leading theologian of the day, but his training denied that Jesus was the Christ. Saul was clearly very biblically literate, and after his encounter with Jesus, was compelled to reinterpret Scripture based on the axiom that Jesus was Lord and Christ. As he engaged in Scripture, Saul became stronger and more powerful in his ability to articulate the truth about Jesus. The Greek word here that's translated increased all the more in strength is in the imperfect tense and passive voice. The imperfect tense implies past action that is not yet completed, meaning that it's still in process. And Saul's empowerment was a continuing process. The passive voice intimated that the strengthening was not from himself, but rather the power of the Holy Spirit at work in him. In other words, Paul was not strengthening himself. He was being strengthened by the Holy Spirit. As a result, Saul's ability to present Jesus as the Son of God was growing. It was expanding. In addition, Saul was laying a rational foundation for reasoning based on Scripture using the axiomatic principle that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. The word translated proving implies a firm foundation for thinking. Uh, we think of proving in the logical sense where you have two assumptions or two predicates and then you use a law of logic to reason. So a simple example of, of this classical reasoning and classical logic and proving things is A equal B, B equal C, therefore A equal to C. That's the syllogism uh, that's common and popular in logic thinking. Uh, but this is a little different here. This idea of proving here was about laying a firm foundation for sound thinking. And this is very consistent with the comment that Acts 2.36 makes, where Peter in the message on the day of Pentecost, he said to the Jews that they could know for certain that Jesus was both Lord and Christ. In Greek logic, knowing anything for certain was very, very problematic. But yet Peter is saying, no, you can know for certain that Jesus is Lord and Christ. Saul's ability to articulate the truth from Scripture about Jesus was so irrefutable that his opponents sought to deny the truth by killing the messenger of truth, as they had done with Jesus and Stephen. Now going on to verse 23. And when day, days had passed, Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. 
They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples lowered him by a basket and led him down through the opening of the wall. And you see, this is, uh, this is very revealing here because now you see Saul has disciples. Wow, when did this happen? How did this happen? Well, we don't know for certain. We don't have those details, but it's very possible that Saul was in Damascus for as long as 14 years, according to Galatians 2.1. Uh, that, that basically Damascus became his base of operations for about 14 years. So if he spent that kind of time there and he continually strengthened his message, he grew in understanding what it meant that Jesus was Lord in Christ. And he was teaching that to his followers. Yeah. He probably developed some disciples. So it's these disciples who become aware of the plot to try to kill him and they help him escape and return to Jerusalem. Verse 26, and when he had come to Jerusalem, he had, they killed him. They couldn't respond to the powerful message of Stephen, so they killed him. Now they can't power, respond to the powerful message of Saul, so they want to kill him. This time, Saul was not aided by his disciples. We don't know if they didn't go with him or they weren't there or just uh, they were in the background. We don't know the details of that. But the brothers in, the, in Jerusalem took him. They took him to Caesarea. That's about 50 miles north, northeast of Jerusalem. That's a seacoast city. And from there, they sent him home, apparently by boat. He could have gone by land. We don't know for sure. But apparently by boat, uh, he sailed up north uh, about 300 miles. to, And there he was able to return home to Tarsus. Saul's return home at this time was apparently necessary for his safety. It's an interesting picture there. When when you get into trouble, the place to go is go home. And uh, those of you that have been around Dennis know that one of the things he teaches is about homeless people. These are people in trouble. And he teaches that the place that they should go is they should go home. They should go to their families, and their families should be caring for them, not the state. All right, finally, the last verse of this section is verse 31. So the church, the ecclesia, through throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The conversion of Saul of Tarsus, a jealous, a zealous Jewish apprentice to Gamaliel, most certainly sent shockwaves through the Jewish community throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. <clears throat> this incited anger from Jews towards Saul, who were certainly deemed him as a traitor, Saul's return to his home of Tarsus seemed to calm the situation and for the moment facilitated peace. The initial time of persecution of the ecclesia was followed by a time of peace that strengthened the ecclesia. Because of the persecution, the ecclesia responded by living in the fear of the Lord and comfort of the spirit. Now, I want to make stress that point. Um, just because there's not persecution doesn't mean that the church is going to be strengthened. And I think we're living in a day when the church is not being strengthened and we're in a relative time of peace. But the persecution could be heating up and the Holy Spirit could be using that now to, to push the ecclesia into a place of growing and maturing and being built up. And there may be a time of peace in the, in the years or months or decades ahead when the church will be able to enjoy something of what was said here uh, about the, the early church. Because of the, the persecution, the ecclesia responded by living in the fear of the Lord and comfort of the Holy Spirit. The conversion of Saul, 
the great adversary of Jesus, was very encouraging. And though the ecclesia knew that the persecution could return at any time, they were grateful for the relief. And during this time of peace, their devotion to the Lord did not wane. They didn't become lukewarm. They were built up, which implies becoming more established. So they became stronger in the faith. In other words, the ecclesia wisely used this time to continue to mature in Christ, learning how to live in right relationship with the Lord as the disciples of Jesus seeking his will and his ways and not their own. Okay, I want to just make a theological point here. Saul's irrefutable apologetic. Now, we all know that we have a charge before God to be good apologists. We're charged to live holy lives, such holy lives that when people see the hope that's in us, because a holy life leads to a life of hope, when they see that hope, and they ask for a reason for the hope, we're able to give them a reason. So we have to be trained to think well, biblically, and we have to live holy lives. This is what we're charged to do. True Christians will grow into this ability. So during this time, Saul, who was already highly biblical literate, had to go through a big transformation. Though he already knew a lot of scripture, he was limited because he did not know that Jesus was Lord in Christ until Jesus intercepted him. To study the Old Testament without the revelation of Jesus, one's understanding is veiled. Only through the revelation of Jesus as the Christ is the veil removed. That's what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 13 through 16. Therefore, though Saul was highly biblically literate, when he was intercepted by Jesus, he had to reinterpret the Old Testament based on the axiom that Jesus is Lord in Christ. This means that he had to build a new foundation for understanding scripture in all reality. Saul's apologetic was rooted in this understanding. Luke recorded that Saul was in the process of rebuilding his understanding of scripture in these words. Acts 9.22 says, Saul grew stronger and kept confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Saul's apologetic was based on proof. This is the word here that I mentioned before, that about building a, a foundation. The proof was that Jesus was the Son of God and therefore Lord in Christ. According to Strong's Concordance, the word translated proving is a compound word composing the word of, of soon, which means with, and babazo, which means to duplicate or to force or cause. Babazo also comes from basis. And you hear a basis, you, we have a, a word basis in English that's kind of like a foundational word. That means to walk or step. It means to, the imagery here is walking or stepping in your reasoning. You need a really firm basis, a firm foundation. So proving means to identify foundational axioms that enable sound thinking. Certainly in Christianity, a foundational axiom is that Jesus is Lord in Christ. This means that Jesus is the Son of God, which means that he had the complete essence of God. At the same time, he's the Son of Man, meaning he had the complete essence of man except for sin. See Hebrews 4.15. Therefore, Jesus was the sinless God-man. Theologians call this the hypostatic union. That is two natures in one person. They sometimes use the word theanthropic person. It's the same thing, the God-man. 
and they have written much. Theologians have written much through the years, through the centuries, trying to understand the mysteries of the theanthropic person. Understanding and building on the foundation of the essence of Jesus is an essential axiom of sound reasoning. In other words, any knowledge that you think you, you have that's not built on Jesus is not built on a sound foundation. Paul noted in Romans 1 that when people suppress the truth of God, as we do with by embracing things like the theory of evolution, we reject, we claim to be atheists, we uh, deny the existence of God. These kinds of things are suppressing the truth of God. A consequence of suppressing the truth of God, which is evident, it is self-evident, everyone has access to this revelation. No one cannot know. That's another, I know it's a double negative, but I'm doing that for a purpose to make the point. You cannot possibly not know that Jesus is the, is, excuse me, that God exists and he's the creator of all. And once you know that, then, then you need revelation about Jesus. When you don't have the revelation or don't receive the revelation that's in creation, then scripture says, according to Romans 1, that you will have deranged thinking and you will be sexually immoral. And that's exactly what we see going on in the cultures of the world today. Likewise, when one embraces the truth of God, one embraces, one receives revelation to think correctly. That's when you will begin to see and understand Christ. And when we get to Acts 10, you will see where someone embraced general revelation, the revelation of God in creation, and God sends Peter to reveal Jesus to them. Now, Saul, immediately after his conversion, began to proclaim Jesus as the Son of God. He was clearly connecting Jesus to the Old Testament prophecies. Saul understood that for a rational argument to have credibility with the Jews meant that it must be rooted firmly in Scripture. So Saul's apologetic to the Jews was irrefutable scriptural arguments that supported his conversion from being an enemy of Jesus to an advocate of Jesus. Some of these arguments were probably, that is, this is that. This is the style that Peter used on the day of Pentecost. This is that. Identifying Jesus as Lord and Christ through Old Testament scripture. And undoubtedly, he would have probably, that is, Paul would have probably reflected back on many, many points in Scripture, for, such as that Jesus was the last Adam. Jesus was the seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15. Jesus was both the Son of God and Son of Man, the theanthropic person. Jesus was born of a virgin, birth, a virgin so that he would be sinless. Jesus was the Son of God. He was the Son of Abraham. He was a prophet like Moses. He was the priest of the order of Melchizedek. You go on and on and on. He was a, suffer a king like David. He was a suffering servant. Jesus is revealed richly, deeply, profoundly through the Old Testament. In addition, Saul and Jesus were contemporaries. Saul, though he didn't, he wasn't originally from Jerusalem. He, he came to Jerusalem to study theology under Gamaliel. So he was there when Jesus was there. Now, I don't know if they ever met or ever had a conversation, but undoubtedly Saul knew a lot about Jesus. He probably knew about the conversation Nicodemus had with Jesus about regeneration. He probably knew about the, the message that Jesus gave to the Jews in John 6 about the communion elements of the bread and wine and what they symbolized about his sacrificial work. He probably heard the prophecy of Matthew 16 that, that Jesus 
would would die. He would be buried and resurrected. And he probably heard something about the Holy Spirit. You see, he would have these would have been conversation points going on in the city. He probably would have heard these things. And undoubtedly, he would have used these things as part of his apologetics as well. There are scores of Messianic texts in the Old Testament and much personal knowledge of Jesus that Saul could have drawn on to make his case that Jesus was and is the Son of God. All of this reminds us that Christianity is historically rooted in Old Testament scripture. And this is the basis for sound thinking and understanding that undergirded Saul's apologetic and the reason that he wrote of Jesus as a repository of wisdom and knowledge in Colossians chapter two, verses two and three. So now let me give you just an application. When my dad started his company in 1949, he could hire qualified workers. After World War II, there was an abundance of trained, eager workers and relatively little work. There were also a few regulations. So the function of hiring and firing and promoting, releasing people, reviewing people, uh, did not require a separate department with highly trained staff supported by labor lawyers to comply with all the regulations, as is the norm today. Most workers were men who displayed strong Christian character. They were dependable and required little supervision. And they, they viewed their job as a stewardship responsibility, not entitlement. Today, the attitude of workers is very different. Many are marginally trained, have questionable character, and view their jobs as entitlement. Furthermore, employers are burdened with the ever-growing government regulation. In response to this, many employers have established HR departments to oversee the complexities of managing people. The root of this is a wrong foundation of thinking about work. The Christian view of work is rooted in stewardship expressed in faithful, faithfully stewarding God's creation. But one cannot see this truth unless one builds based on a worldview rooted in the truth that Jesus is both Lord and Christ, as prophesied in the Old Testament scripture. Only then can one truly develop a worldview of work that is congruent with God. An example of this is Saul of Tarsus, who was transformed when Jesus intercepted him. This transformation changed Saul's view of Jesus and consequently changed his worldview. A byproduct of this change was a change in Saul's view of work and the work he actually did. He no longer worked against Jesus, but he worked for Jesus. He went from being the, the persecutor to the persecuted. A transformed life produces a transformed worker until a person comes to a profound relationship with Jesus, a relationship marked by a worldview built on the truth that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. The person will never be a consistently outstanding worker. When people are accepted by Jesus, he provides a basis for a, a transformed life and the power of the of to live this life as well he, in other words he doesn't transform us only he transforms us and empowers us to live that transformed life evidence of this reality in a person will be transformed view of work work will no longer be viewed as something people have to do it will be seen as a stewardship privilege that people are created and called to do 70 years ago my dad was able to hire people who were already in the process of transformation by Jesus. Therefore, their view of work was much more biblical. 
Today, the trend is, is in the opposite direction. Fewer and fewer in the workplace understand God's plan and purpose for work because they don't know God. This seems to be increasingly diff- true even among those who claim to know Christ. Therefore, it is increasingly difficult to find quality workers who are living transformed lives because they were intercepted by Jesus. So the burden on the work employer to tra- so the burden is on the employer to train workers. This means that to develop excellent workers, discipleship that is coming to Jesus and maturing in Jesus that should have been done in the formative years of the family, schools, and local churches will have to be done in the workplace. To be able to disciple workers, you must have workers that possess certain basic traits, just like Saul displayed. First, there's humility. Transformation begins with humility. When Jesus intercepted Saul, the first thing that happened to Saul was blinded and he fell to the ground. This was symbolic of giving up his the old worldview based on human ideas. Second, submission. Though Saul was submitted to human authority, he was not surrendered to divine authority. In other words, he was surrendered to a human authority who was very sick, very ungrounded, very wrong in their thinking. He needed to be under human authority that was aligned with God. To be a disciple, one must be trained to obey the commands of Christ. Saul needed commissioning agents like Ananias and Barnabas to train him, protect him, and guide him. And finally, you need disciples who are teachable. Though Saul was taught by Gamaliel and highly biblically literate, his knowledge of scripture was impaired because he did not understand that Jesus was Lord in Christ. He needed to rebuild his knowledge. So he became very teachable. So he rebuilt his knowledge based on the truth that Jesus was the son of God. Workers who display these traits of humility, submission, and teachability can be trained and can become excellent workers. The key to being a great worker is a great worldview, a Christian worldview, the only correct foundation of thinking about all of life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the repository of all wisdom and knowledge. There is no better foundation to live from than Jesus as revealed in Scripture. To embrace Jesus, one must be be humble, submitted, and teachable. These are the essential traits. Then one can be discipled and become a transformed worker. May the Lord give us grace to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, guys. Unmute you here. Yeah, you have to unmute yourself, I think, here. All right, so uh, Richard. Um, you know, very good. I, you know, part of, I, um, this has been a season of me actually realizing, um, some of this truth you taught, uh, especially that of, uh, Paul was being strengthened and it's, you know, I've noticed in this probably the past year, year and a half, you know, a total shift in, um, I don't know how, just my relationship and understanding and training that the Holy Spirit's doing with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, and right underneath of that note, I wrote, you you made the statement that, you know, uh, we need to be trained to give people hope. And, you know, when we, um, 
as our relationship deepens um, with Christ and we come into new understandings of who he is and that type of thing, it's no longer um, necessarily just a regurgitation of biblical principles. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a real life application of understanding of those truths and through them, we're able to give people hope. And it's it's natural because the hope has happened within us. Mm-hmm. And so it's not that we're teaching something that we haven't experienced, um, but we can read it and personally understand the experience from it. And out of that, you know, um, being able to transfer hope to people, I think, is truly one of our callings, you know. And I, I really... I. I really like that because one of the things, um, you know, that's been uh, really clear to me in, in this study of 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 the cross and that type of thing is that yes, you know, God's um, righteousness demanded um, these things happening, um, but all the way back even before the garden and in the garden, you know one of the things was God's love for relationship with man. And, you know, he wants, he wants that it's, it's relational and entering into this relational um, relationship with Jesus and allowing it to be deeper, man gives you the, gives you a, a, an overflowing pot, if you will, of hope that you can share with other people. Um, And, uh, and then I like the last three traits. Those are good too. I wrote down, but that was, um, I, I appreciated teaching today and thank you. Good. Good. Mario. Um, yeah, I, I found that a very encouraging scripture, um, in, in the sense that, um, I agree with, with, with Richard saying that the, the element that Paul was strengthened, um, and I think that is something um, I'm personally going through right now is, is, is just how just being more um, focused on the word and being more focused on on, 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 on walking the, the walk that God actually requires of us. And uh, just gives me a lot of um, hope as well in the sense that I, I'm being strengthened, but in the in turn, I am able to to strengthen others around me and give them hope in, in return. And um, I think that's that's that really spoke to me um, in my current circumstances. And I also liked your, your application, Gerald, uh, Gerald of the, the the key to transformation, those three elements, um, the the humility, the submission and, and teachability. Um, this is actually something that I will be hopefully dealing with with one of my client companies, um, well, my only client company at this stage. <laughs> um, I'm doing a, a coaching for them uh, of the executive committee and their ma- management committees. Mm-hmm. And um, transformation is desperately needed there. And uh, it's a very secular.